Amen. Amen. Please be seated, except the kids. Kids, don't see it. Don't go anywhere, though. Kids, remain standing. Everybody else can sit down, or you can run to the back, as some of them are. You're still standing. I'm going to pray for you as you guys go to class. So just, you can stand there. Sadie, Ella, Kay, just wait one second. I'm going to pray for you. Lord Jesus, bless these children as they go to hear the teaching of your word. May they be delighted to know of Christ and give the, all of their life to them. And thank you, God, for these men and women that are teaching them and making disciples this morning. Bless them as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now you can go. The last shall be first. The first shall be last, Sadie Nellicade. Don't forget that. Uh, I've got a few resources. Each week we're giving away resources through this series of the Reformation. Um, this one is less historic, although it is very much historic, if we understand the Bible to be historic. Uh, so I have three resources and two, four, five resources in three different forms. The first one is uh, something that I think Joey has put together. It's called uh, Making Sense of the Bible. Uh, delight in Jesus and help others do the same. So if you're not quite sure how to read the Bible, come to a conclusion about the Bible, what the Bible's teaching, and then helping others do the same, this is a great little book that Joey's put together. There's two copies up here for you, uh, well, for whoever wants to come and take it afterwards. The next are uh, a book called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. So if you're wondering if the Bible is reliable and these kinds of things, if it's just some ancient relic that really has no truth in it, um, this would be a good book for you to read. So there's a couple copies of those here. And lastly, Kevin DeYoung's little book, Taking God at His Word. Why the Bible is knowable, necessary, and enough, and what that means for you and me. Short little time. Look how small that is. Isn't that great? So, and the, the chapter, chapter 7, Christ's Unbreakable Bible, is worth the whole book. It's an amazing chapter that just talks about how Jesus understood the Bible. Those are here for you today. Uh, a couple quick, or actually one more announcement. We have uh, our food drive uh, on the 4th of November. That's not this coming Saturday, but the next. Uh, meet here at 11 a.m. in the parking lot out here at Woodrow Wilson. And uh, that's one way our church has covenanted to care for the poor. And that's one thing that we do every year uh, in our community. Our community has come to sort of look for it. It's kind of nice when they see us coming and they, uh, yeah, they're familiar faces. So come on out, 11 o'clock. It's a short thing, easy way. One easy way that we do to serve our community. Hope you'll come to that. Um, but I want to start this sermon by asking you a question. How many Bibles do you have at home? How many of them do you have at home? How many Bibles do you have resting on a shelf somewhere? Is it two, maybe three, like me, maybe six or seven, maybe ten Bibles sitting there? waiting to be read or given away to somebody. Maybe some of you have no Bible. Uh, if that's you, we have a gift for you. We want you to take one home. There's one right out there. I hope you'll take it home. Uh, but I think because we do have so many of us are so familiar with having the Scripture and easy access to the Scriptures that we can take the Bible for granted. And so here's my goal for us this morning. My goal for us this morning is that we would have a greater appreciation for God's Word. We'd have a greater appreciation for God's word that would then lead to a glad submission to that word, which would then lead to a magnification of the one who is the word became flesh, Christ the Lord. There's my goal, that we would have a greater appreciation for the for the word of God, which would lead then lead to a, a glad submission to it, which would lead to the magnification of Christ. See, we take so many things for granted, I think, here in 21st century America. Food, clothing, friends, family, church, we have uh, money, so much money, we buy most everything that we even want. 
I think we here in America, 21st century America, have to be one of the most spoiled generations in the history of the world. And so we, as a result of that, we wind up complaining and grumbling a lot and we take a lot of things for granted. And I can't think of something that we take more for granted than the Bible than the word of God. So the Bible and the teaching of the Bible have become so common that they've kind of become sort of like a comedic punchline in our day today. There are Bibles in every hotel drawer. I check every time I stay in one. And I've yet, I've, there may be one time I didn't find one there, but most of the time there's a Bible in every hotel drawer. There's Bibles that are handed out generously on the street corners. Uh, we praise God for that. We think about the, even the proper teaching of the Bible. I was thinking about that this morning. Just think about all the places this morning, right now, as we speak, just in our city alone, where the Bible is being opened up and it's being taught faithfully. And so many other churches around the city right now. Isn't that great? And I think we can take those things for granted. The manna that surrounds us. It does just that. It surrounds us. It's all, us, all around us. But church family, you need to know, it did not used to be this way. The proliferance of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible did not used to be the way, that way. Some 500 years ago, uh, there were churches without Bibles. That was pretty common. There were priests that hardly knew their Bibles. And of course, there were people that did not own Bibles. So they could not read them for themselves. And as a result of that, of course, they had bad shepherds that were leading them in things that were not healthy. And then there were people that were not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But all of that changed during the Reformation. During the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. The Reformation was about the recovery of the Gospel. And the Gospel is found in the pages of Scripture. And Scripture is the authority for we Christians. It's our authority. It's our source of truth. And so there's a hundred places in the Bible or more that I could go to to make that case. But I'm going to go to one that's probably familiar to a lot of you. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, sorry, verse 14. We'll go to verse 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Uh, that's on the back half of the Bible. You can go to the middle, go to the right. It's towards the back. Uh, remember when Paul, the way the Bible is organized in the New Testament, it goes Gospels, first four Gospels, Acts, and then it starts with the Paul epistles, and it starts with the longest ones, and then it goes to the shortest ones. Timothy is one of the shorter ones. It'll be towards the end. So here we find 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to his young disciple Timothy, and here's what he says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. And so the says there, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So that is to say it's God's word it's god's word second peter chapter 1 verse 20 and 21 says about it he says no prophecy of scripture come from someone's own interpretation but men spoke from god that's how they understood the scripture so the image here in second uh timothy is the same image we i think we at least it conjures up images of what we see in genesis 2 when 
God has created the lifeless body of Adam and he breathes into him and he gives him life. And that's what scripture is and that's what scripture does. God's word breathing in us to give us life. You give yourself to the words of this book, you will find life. You don't give yourself to this book, you will not find life, but instead death. And so for centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had not hardly taught the word, but instead they emphasized and still emphasize the administration of the sacraments. Which is why if you go to a Roman Catholic church, you can go to any Roman Catholic church, you'll find this. You walk in and you'll see at the front and center of their building is an altar, is a table communicating this is the center of their gathering, the mass, the re-crucifixion of Christ to be received uh, in communion. Uh, as opposed to here, what do we find right now in the middle of our gathering? A pulpit, right? This is communicating to us the place in which we understand life comes through believing, through trusting God's Word that we might have life. And there you see a significant difference in the teaching, the understanding of God and His Word between Roman Catholics and Protestants. So, as it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through what? Through the Word of Christ. And that's what the Reformers recovered. The authority of the Word for life and a life of faith with Christ. And for we English speakers, uh, there are few people that we should be more appreciative of uh, than John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. These two men are absolutely paramount to that Bible that is sitting in your lap. So John Wycliffe was born in England sometime during the 1320s. Think about that, guys. That's 200 years before uh, Luther and the coming of the Protestant Reformation. Wycliffe rightly saw the need to have the Bible translated into the vernacular, which is the language that people spoke and understood. And so Wycliffe completes a translation of the Bible in 1384 from the Latin into the English. So he didn't have the privilege of having the Greek and Hebrew at the time. It just wasn't made uh, available to many people at the time. Nor did Wycliffe have the Gutenberg Press to make that, take that translation and print off a bunch of Bibles that he'd done. And so Wycliffe's translation was wonderful and good and revolutionary. And as we'll see, well, it got him into a lot of trouble. But it was slightly imprecise because it was coming from the Latin instead of the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. And also, it just wasn't widely available because there was no press to print a bunch of them off so that people could read it. But nevertheless, Wycliffe is still condemned a heretic. He dies of natural causes in 1384. And at a council in 1415, 13, about 30 years after his death, where another famous forerunner of the Reformation, a guy by the name of a Czech, Czechman from the name, from, uh, whose name was John Huss, where he was condemned and burned at the stake. This is in 1415. They also, at that same council, exhume John Wycliffe's bones and burn them. And so you can imagine the danger of the Englishman William Tyndale who came after Wycliffe and translated the Bible from the original languages of Greek and Hebrew into the English. So Tyndale is born in 1494. He graduates from Oxford in 1512. He then receives a Master's of Arts in 1515. His master's degree allows him to study theology. Uh, but as we see, was, but as was strangely common back then, studying theology did not include any significant time in studying the Bible. So Tyndale was a gifted linguist who became fluent, this blows my mind, one man who became uh, fluent in French, 
Greek, Hebrew, German, Latin, and Spanish, in addition to his own native English. In 1522, Tyndale found himself studying the Greek New Testament, which had now been printed. People could read. Those that had the ability to read the Greek were doing so. And Tyndale is pouring himself over that Greek New Testament where he begins to see from the text of Scripture the errors of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. He would often go to a friend of his, a guy by the name of John Walsh. John Walsh was a noted uh, Catholic. and He would often go to him and have dinner with uh, his guests and the dinner guests of John Walsh were other Catholic scholars. And so he would go to dinner there and he began to push some of these dinner guests and ask them questions about what they believed. And he began finding that these people didn't have many uh, conclusions that were based from Scripture. They just didn't seem to know their Bibles that well. Uh, That then led in response to one particular evening when they were having a, a particular guest over and that guest said the following as Tyndale was sitting there. He said that we were better to be without God's law than to be than it is to be with the Pope's law. And in response to this, we get one of Tyndale's famous quotes. He says, quote, I defy the Pope and all his laws. You can imagine the awkwardness of the dinner table at this point. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God should spare my life many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than you do. What a great goal for life. Tyndale wanted you, beloved. He wanted you to have that Bible so that you could read it and worship God and love your neighbor. He wanted that so desperately to deliver that so that people would worship God in spirit and truth and love their neighbor. And so four years later, in opposition to the law, for the first time in world history, Tyndale completed and had published an English New Testament that was translated from the original languages. Now, for, in order for him to do that, to translate that into English, uh, Tyndale needed to leave England and go to the continent of Europe where he could do all of that work. He completes the New Testament, interestingly, in the city of Worms. For those of you that have been around, that city should be familiar to you. Remember this? Remember back in 1521 where Luther was condemned there uh, in the city of Worms at the Diet of Worms in 1521. And so now, here, 15 years later, in 1536, in that very same city, Tyndale completes the New Testament from the original language. And now, Tyndale then found someone else willing to print this Bible there in Germany. And he was from the cloth district of England, Tyndale was. And so he used his connections to take pages of his Bible, smuggle them in between the pieces of cloth to be carried over into England. Genius. And so eventually the first run gets some 3,000 copies of the Bible into the hands of the common people and others, church leaders in England. But Tyndale was hiding in Europe. He was gone for about seven years to be doing all of this when a man pretending to be his friend turns Tyndale over to the authorities. He's taken back to England where he is imprisoned for months. He is later brought to trial for believing in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins as well as for printing his Bible. And on August of 1536, he's condemned as a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church. A couple months later, on October the 6th, he is then strangled and then burned at the stake. Just before his death, Tyndale prayed not a prayer of condemnation. Tyndale prayed a prayer of grace to be given 
to the one person he knew could get that Bible into the hands of the people. He prayed for grace to be given to the king of England. This was his prayer. Last lines before he died, he said, O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And the Lord kindly granted this request when three years later, King Henry VIII required every church in England to make a copy of Tyndale's English Bible available to its parishioners. Isn't that great? That Bible, that Tyndale, Tyndale's Bible, would go on to sell over a million copies between 1560 and 1640. And his carefully chosen words, Tyndale's carefully chosen words, uh, have affected the English language in so many more ways than William Shakespeare. So many more ways than William Shakespeare, his words. I could give you a whole list of translated things, like only begotten son. We hang on to that translation. That's Tyndale's words. So many other things. His life, Tyndale's life, was taken, beloved, so that you could have that Bible. And you could read it. And most of his work is still reflected in the pages of the Bible that you have in your laps. We get this in a letter just before his death. He's writing to a friend to talk about why it is he's done all of this. Why he subjected himself to such grief. He said, I will be patient. He's writing this from a cell. I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. Tyndale, friends, was passionate for the exaltation of the infinite glory of Christ. He knew that if the words of Christ would be made available for pastors to preach from, for people to read, for disciples to make disciples with, then they would be complete equipped for every good work, which would then lead God to receive glory. And that was his goal. Not just to get a Bible translation, but that God would be glorified. Tyndale knew that that was worth giving his life for. And of course, he was right. He was right. But lest there be any confusion in all of this, the true hero is not John Wycliffe. And the true hero is not William Tyndale. The truth, uh, the true hero is, as it always is, God himself. God, friends, is not silent. He's not silent. He has spoken. If you want to hear from God, read your Bible out loud. That's God speaking. He is not silent. He has spoken so that we, so that you, friend, might know what it is to be saved, to be Safe from your sin, to be reconciled back to Him, to the praise and glory of God Himself. So look back there, 2 Timothy 3. Notice three words there in verse 15. Three words, which are able. See those words? The sacred writings He's referencing there, the sacred writings He's referencing, so that's the Scripture that He mentions in the next verse, verse 16. These things are able. Able to do what? Able to do two things. Verse 15, they're able to make you wise for salvation. Verse 16, they are make you to wise to have training in righteousness. That's what the scriptures are able to do. Wise for salvation and for training in righteousness. Or in a word there, that second one, we could say sanctification. It's, it's able to make, make you saved by God's grace through the power of his spirit. He uses the word to make us saved and to sanctify us. Salvation is a moment. When by grace through faith you trust in Christ alone and are justified, declared innocent by God himself. And the knowledge of that salvation comes to us from the Bible, from the scriptures. I had this old uh, hermeneutics professor, my, probably my most 
uh, one of the most influential, influential men in my life. He taught hermeneutics to us in seminary. And he talked about the need for the Bible. And uh, he told the story of a father and a son walking through the parted Red Sea. And they're walking through the parted Red Sea, you know, uh, Exodus. And the son says to the dad, well, dad, what does all of this mean? And the father says, I don't know. We have to wait for the book. And that's what the Bible is. It tells us about the events of God. that We might properly understand them. We tend to think if we were there in the moment, it'd be better. But it wouldn't be. There's tons of people that were there in the moment that didn't believe. We needed the scripture from God to help us understand salvation and sanctification. So sanctification is the process wherein we grow up into that salvation that we already possess for those that have trusted Christ. So by continuing to trust in Christ, we learn from the scriptures the things that we need to give ourselves to in order to grow up in the salvation that we already possess. And so by giving ourselves to the word, we are then trained in righteousness so that so that what? What does it say there in verse 17? So that we might be complete, equipped, equipped for a lot of good works. Is that what it says? No, equipped for Every good work, every good work, every good work. So the scriptures alone are able to make us wise for salvation and for sanctification. Scriptures alone, they're sufficient to make us wise for salvation and for sanctification. Now, looking there in that text there in 2 Timothy 3, it may be said that Paul's reference to scripture there in verse 16 only refers to the Old Testament. Since he's writing this, Paul's writing this at the time of the New Testament when the New Testament has not been formed yet. So some people might say the scripture there is he's only talking about the Old Testament. But we know, friends, that Peter himself equates the writings of Paul as scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. He calls them scripture, the, uh, the letters of Paul. And also the remaining portions of the New Testament, they are all given to us by the apostles themselves or the disciples of those that were apostles of Christ, who is the authority. And so as a result, the New Testament and the Old Testament are considered Scripture. And Scripture is authoritative for our salvation and for our salvation or sanctification because of the nature of the words that are here in the Bible. Because of the nature of the words. Take a look there. What is the nature of the words of Scripture? Look at verse 16. They are, once again, breathed out by God. In other words, the Bible is God's word. All of it. Not parts of it, not pieces of it. All of it is God's word. So sort of like a king who issues a decree to the country that he loves. This book, friends, this book, this beautiful book is God's authoritative decree to the world that he has made. To bring them into the conformity of the intention for which he made it. But someone might say, well, this isn't God's word, Nathan. No, this is man's word about God. That's what some might say. Two things about that. First, I just mentioned the authors themselves. They saw it as an utterance from God himself. So the ones themselves that are writing it, that's what they understood they were doing. They were writing God's word. They read it that way. They treated it that way. But also, too, Jesus Christ saw the Bible as God's word. I mentioned that one chapter in that book. You should go and read that. But let me give you one example of how Jesus saw all of the scriptures as the authority of God himself. Give you one example. I could give you plenty. I could give you tons of them. I'm going to give you one. Matthew chapter 22, verse 43 and 44. This is Jesus talking. He, that's Jesus, 
he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. Now, first off, you should note there, Jesus is citing Psalm 110. He cited that psalm actually a couple times. But notice what Jesus is doing there. There you get his understanding of the Bible. Notice what he's doing. Jesus, first of all, he affirms that a man wrote it. Do you see it? He said it, David wrote it. But also note that David wrote it how? In the Spirit. And there you get Jesus' theology of the Bible. That is... In the Spirit of God, in the third person of the Trinity, working through those human authors, we get God's Word. And then he's quoting that Scripture, Jesus is quoting that Scripture in such a way as to bind our conscience. In other words, he's treating it as something that is authoritative to us from God Himself. That's the way that he wanted us to understand it. And he did that so often, Jesus did. So often. We know from Matthew 5 that he said that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus was always quoting Scripture. He would always quote it as though we were to submit to it. He submitted to it as God's Word. And so for those reasons, we cannot conclude that the Bible's man's Word about God, but instead it is, as Jesus treated it, God's Word through man for man. That it might give praise and glory to God. And then as to the corruption of the Bible, the frequently cited example of the telephone game. You all know the telephone game. You whisper in somebody's ear and it goes around and by the time it gets there, it's all messed up. So the idea here is, is that, well, yeah, maybe it was the originals were the original autographs, the original manuscripts. Maybe they were God's word, but over all the translations that eventually now it's all corrupted. Well, let me give you one example of how that simply is not the case. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered in the late 40s, early 1950s. Those scrolls had excerpts of all kinds of books of the Bible from a century before Christ. So in other words, the Dead Sea Scrolls are some thousands of years old. And when you read those scrolls and put them alongside the same Bible that's in your lap right now, you will find that they are 99% word for word the same. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And that, it's actually 0.6 difference. So the 0.06% difference is just misspelling of words and small insignificant details. Like one, one says we, the other says us, stuff like that. No doctrinal differences are there. So friends, Christians believe this to be God's word. And so we have been carefully preserving it. So the Bible in our hands is none other than God's good authoritative word to us, which alone is able, which alone is sufficient to make us wise to salvation and complete for sanctification. And so, guys, simple and obvious point of application. Simple and obvious point of application. If you believe that Christ was or is your substitute on the cross for your sin. He paid the penalty for your sin. If you believe that that is true, you believe that by faith, by grace through faith, He rose on the third day, and so you too have been born again to a new and living hope, and Christ, you would then say, is King and Lord of your life. If that's you, question, is His Word not only your confessional authority, but is it your functional authority? In other words, all I'm saying there is, don't... I'm I'm sure that you would say, maybe maybe many of you Christians would say, yes, I believe the Bible is the word of God, but is it actually working out that way? Well, that's how we're going to spend the remaining portion of our time to flesh that out. Is the Bible your source of authority for the most important questions of your life? Or do you live by some other authority and only use the Bible when it fits a previously held position? Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow me. Which is to say, deny self. Deny self-centered views, accept difficulty by following Jesus and his words. So how is it we know that we've been born again and are following Christ? Well, by denying ourselves, by taking on difficulty and following him, by his following his words, his decrees. So that leads us right to two ultimate options. Either Christ is Lord of our lives, as is evidenced by our denying ourselves, following him by following his word, or he's not Lord of our life, as is illustrated by our not denying ourselves and not following his words. And so you say, well, Nathan, that's great, but can you help me work that out a little bit? Be glad to. That's what we're going to do. But before I do that, one little point of caution as we move into this. One point of caution. I want to leave room for those of you that are working through this. All right? I realize that it's not always so clean to be submitted to the authority of Christ and not be submitted to the authority of ourselves and sort of know exactly how that's working out. So, in other words, friends, if you find yourself desiring to submit to the Word of God and the glory of Christ and the good of your soul, and you're still working to try to understand some things and believe and come under Christ's teaching, listen, be patient. You just keep going. This first point that we're going to come to is not talking about you necessarily. All right, this, you just need to be patient. You just keep reading the Bible and you're fine. Just trust the Word. Keep reading the Word. Surround yourself with people that will help you and follow you. You keep going. We're not talking about you, this first one. These are those, this first question, those that are not submitted to the authority of Christ. These are the kinds of people that are just not interested in coming under the authority of Scripture. And so that's the first question we're going to ask. What would it look like to take the name of Christ yet not live in submission to His authoritative Word? Well, thankfully, right around 2 Timothy 3, where we have been, it answers this question. So what we find is the age, this age of expressive individualism is not new. It's pretty old, pretty ancient. Take a look back up there just before 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 7. Look at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. 2 Timothy 3, 1. We're going to look, all we're going to do is just evaluate this by walk, walking right through the text. 1 to 5, okay? Take a look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 as we answer this question, what would it look like to not live under the authority of Christ and yet still take his name as though you did? So, first thing he says, verse 1, but understanding this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. We should ask why. Well, why will there be points of difficulty? For people will be, and the first thing he says, he gives a long list. We're going to rock right through them. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be first lovers of self. They'll be lovers of self. So we all live under authority. The question is, friends, what authority are we submitting to? And here we see Paul says that there will be times of difficulty to true Christians because there will be some that understand themselves as authority. They are lovers of self. They love themselves. They love their desires, their wants, their preferences, so much so that they live in self-love and they're not willing to crucify it and bring it under the authority of Christ. They don't like the authority of the Word. And they bring difficulty to those that are trying to do that. Second, we find that they're going to be lovers of money. So there's another authority that, that can be had. Jesus tells us so clearly, you cannot love both God and money. And those that love money more than God are willing to cut corners, to cut the corners of God's word in order to pursue the greater desire, the greater God of wealth. Third, we find that they're going to be difficult to true Christians are going to be had it difficult because these people will be proud or arrogant. 
Instead of, instead of assessing themselves, these kinds of people, uh, instead of assessing themselves as the New Testament does, wholly in need of grace and mercy of God, the pride and the arrogance, the proud and the arrogant, they think very highly of themselves. And they think very highly of their ideas. Humility then is lacking in their life, which would cause them to not humble themselves before the Word. Next we find that they are abusive. So this could be emotional abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse. Someone is so given to their own passions, they hurt people around them. So if this is happening, then they are not submitting to the teaching of God's Word, even if they say they are, even if they are the ones doing the teaching. Right? If abuse is happening, you are not living under the authority of Christ and His good Word. Next, we find they're disobedient to their parents. Paul gives some careful words of instructions to kids here. So are the kids honoring God's command to obey their father and their mother? Now, all the parents in the room are like, pretty sure, not doing that, my kids, right? But listen, so the question is, is there fruit of a desire to come underneath those authorities? Is there fruit of a desire to come underneath the authority that God has given in a mom and a dad? Next, we find they are ungrateful. So remember, we're asking the question, what would it look like to take the name of Christ and not live under the authority of the word? Well, they're ungrateful. So question would be here, are you marked by a lack of thankfulness? So would people describe you as someone that often grumbles or complains? Another way of asking that, are you often praying or speaking gratitude to God and to others, even your enemies? Well, if you're not and you are marked by a spirit of thanklessness, you are in danger of going beyond the rich provision of God's word. The next thing that we find the difficulty that's going to come to true Christians is there's going to be people that, as we'll see, take the appearance of godliness. They take the name of Christ. And yet we find that they're unholy. They're unholy. Now, holy means to be set apart. And so the question here would be, are you unset apart? So that is, do you conform to the world and its loves, or are you being conformed by the world to come, as it is revealed to us in God's Word? Next, we find that they're heartless. This means to be without love. So it reminds us of Paul's word to the Corinthians when he says that if you speak in the tongues of angels, or you give your body over to be burned, but you have not love, you are nothing more than a noisy symbol. Pharisees are a perfect example of this, right? Great example. They knew their Bibles. They're trying to teach their Bibles. They're kind of being harsh on people. Uh, but they were heartless. They're heartless people. They were ultimately out for themselves in their own position. And they were not out to try to help people love God and to love their neighbor. They had their own agenda. Next, we find that they're unappeasable. Unappeasable. So those that do not desire to bring themselves under the conformity of the word are unappeasable. So would others say that your expectations are difficult to meet? Or do you find that most everyone around you often and frequently disappoint you? You may be said to be unappeasable. That is, unwilling or unable to be appeased or satisfied. Friends, God's Word easily satisfies us because it exposes us to our own weaknesses. And it exposes us to God's grace in Christ. And therefore, if you are unable to be regularly appeased, you may be going beyond or outside of God's good word for you to be satisfied or appeased. Next, we find that they're slanderous. Slander means to tear something or someone down with your words. 
Are you marked by often tearing people down with your words, not building them up with your words? James says in James 3.10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Ephesians 4.31 says, let all, note those three letters, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And so if you are marked by slander, then you're not living under the authority of God's good word. Next, we find they're without self-control. Now, this is a difficult one, right? Because this is pretty much everybody in the room. All of us, in some way, lack self-control. We have lack self-control. We watch too much TV. We eat too much food. We sleep too much. We work too much. These kinds of things. But listen, again... I just want to keep emphasizing this. Paul is not talking about those of us that understand we are works in progress. It's not who he's talking about here. He's not talking about those of us that screw up, that repent and labor to bring ourselves under God's good rule. He's talking about those kinds of people that have no interest in self-control by the word. He's talking about the kinds of people who live by the whims of their own desires, their own passions, with no desire to bring them under the control of Christ. Next word we see there is brutal. Brutal means to, uh, to be fierce or savage. It goes well with living without self-control. Someone is just consistently harsh. They don't live under the authority of God's word. Next we find they're not loving good. Pretty self-explanatory there, right? If God is good, then His word is good. Since it's His word. And so those that do not like, do not enjoy, or do not want the teaching of God's word, they bear the marks of the enemy. They illustrate uh, that they do not desire to be under the authority of God's Word. Next, we find that they're treacherous. Treacherous there just means betrayer like Judas. You're known for betraying God or, or in your fellow man by living for some other cause greater than Christ and His ways. Next, we see that they're reckless. So there's no thought to your actions. You're reckless. You're sort of like a car that doesn't obey the traffic laws. You're driving all over the place and you're harming others. This illustrates that God's word is not your guide. Next, we see swollen with conceit. So you're not humble as Christ was humble. And next, last, we see lovers of pleasure rather rather than lovers of God. Now, if you've been around this church for a while, you know we like to talk about pleasure. We call the church the pleasure place. So what Paul is saying here is not as though there's no pleasure in following God. Not at all. That's not what he's saying. It means that this kind of person is more willing to be submitted to their own definition of pleasure than to God's definition of pleasure as it is given to us in his word. And Paul then makes a kind of encapsulating statement there in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And what's the power? We need to ask what he means here. What, what's the power of godliness? Well, we know the answer to that, right? We saw that a couple weeks ago. The gospel. Right? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And where is it we get the gospel? We get the gospel in the word. And so someone can take the appearance of godliness, appearance of Christianity, but they deny its power by denying the clear teaching of God's word. And Paul says that you should do what with those kinds of people that he just listed? He says there to avoid such people. He goes on to say in verses six and seven, these kinds of people are led astray by various passions, always learning. 
and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So you might be interested, always learning some things about Jesus, but you never actually deny yourself and submit your life to his good rule because, Paul says, you're led astray by various passions. Now, again, I'm going to keep hitting this because I don't want you to hear the wrong thing. We all have various passions that often lead us astray. The question is, listen, the question is, is Christ your hope? Is he your reward? Are you repenting of sins, trusting in him and day by day, letting the water of his word smooth you out? Well, if so, you're not who Paul's describing here. Christ's blood cleanses you. Repent, believe and receive the grace and forgiveness of Christ. Look over, flip over to now Second uh, Timothy four, right after the passage we looked at. So we looked at chapter three, verse fourteen to seventeen, and then notice what comes right after that. It's kind of like a sandwich. What we just read was kind of the top piece of bread, right? This is who you should not. What it looks like to not follow the word. And then we get the actual meat of the word. This is what it is. This is what it does. And then he ends here on saying again what it looks like to not follow the word. In these next few verses, chapter four, verse three and four. Notice in verse two, there are people. These are the people Paul's talking about. In verse two, he says, preach the word. That's what I'm doing right now. Right. Preach it. Preach the word because and here it comes. Why do we need to preach the word? That same word we've been investing, the same stuff that we need to same kind of people we need to avoid. Why? Because he says, look at verse three, because the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, that is healthy teaching, but have itching ears, that is they want something to sort of satisfy them, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, did you notice a couple words keep coming up over and over again? Own passions. Your own passions. Are you following your own passions or are you taking them captive to God's word and bringing them underneath the passion of his glory as it is revealed in his word? Another little exercise to maybe help you evaluate where you're at in this uh, to see if you're denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Jesus by following his words. Try and think of a few ways maybe where you have changed your mind on something because of your exposure to God's word. Can you think of some things like that? Over the course of the last three, four, five years, maybe ten years, you've been walking with Jesus longer. Can you think of some things that maybe you've changed your mind on as a result of studying the Word? Because if our minds never change, we only go on being affirmed in our own assumptions. We are possibly just then accumulating teachers to suit our own passions. Or another way of kind of evaluating this, you can try this. Take the controversial issues in our society today, whatever they may be. Take any controversial issue. If we were to have a sermon on it today, then many of you would come and you would be very interested to know what I'm going to say. So things like sexual permissiveness, uh, homosexuality, abortion, women's roles in the family and in the church, the exclusivity of Christ alone for salvation, church discipline, or even just simply the authority of the Bible. Think about those questions and ask yourself this. Are your convictions about those things formed by God's good word or are they formed by the spirit of the age? Or are they formed maybe by your own passions? Just evaluate that. See, friends, if we are not all yet complete and God is conforming us to his image and not conforming him to ours, and if this world is, the, as the Bible calls it, this present darkness, then surely we're going to read things in the Bible we might not immediately agree with, right? And so just ask yourself this question. Are those disagreements striving to be informed by our good God? 
Or are we letting our own passions or the world speak louder? Another question of application to see if the word is our functional authority. Uh, When you look at a church to join, do you evaluate it based off of whether or not it meets your personal desires? Or do you evaluate that church based off of whether or not it's trying to be faithful to God's word? Friends, answering these questions will help us see if our confessional authority matches up with what is our functional authority. That we're denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus. So, but I want to end, though, on the positive notions of this. Right? We've been thinking all the kind of what it doesn't look like. So let's end our time together by thinking about what it does look like, the beauty of it all. So I don't want to lose sight of the fact that I keep calling it God's good word. Right, it's good. God is good. We know that He's good because He sent His Son. And so surely we can conclude that the Word that testifies to His Son is also good. It's also good. Is it easy? No way. It's hard. But it is good. It is good. So, what does it look like to live underneath the authority of God's good Word for us? And we've kind of already answered the question, right? We could just go the other direction. Right? By not conforming to the world or our own base passions, but instead being willing to agree with whatever we find in the clear teaching of the Word. That's what it would look like. In other words, the first thing it means is Christ is the Lord, I'm not. Christ is the King, I'm not. He has the best read on the good life, not me. Right? That's what we can agree. That's how we know that we're being born again, giving ourselves to the authority of the Word. And by doing this, we can agree, or we can then see the second thing that it means to look to the good aspects of living under the authority of God. Namely, we agree that God's word is profitable. It's profitable. You can see that there in verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. It's profitable. It came from the mouth of God, and God has given us life in Christ, so we agree that it profits to give ourselves to the word. It profits. We say no to the patterns of the world, and we say yes to the profit of the word, which then leads to the next thing that it profits for. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. It profits for teaching. Profits for teaching. This is what it looks like to live under the authority, the good authority of God's good word. We prioritize the teaching of the word. That's what it looks like. We prioritize it. We come to church prepared to sing. We come to church prepared to pray. We come prepared to church to to speak the word to each other. We look forward to the preaching of the word. We read good books on the word and what it teaches. We surround ourselves with people that will properly teach us the word. And we take the opportunity, don't miss this, we take the opportunity to also take it ourselves having been fed and we go feed others with it. That's what it looks like. We're trying to feed it to others. We read the Bible regularly ourselves. We meditate on it. We memorize it. These kinds of things. We pray it. But also we see this is what it looks like. It profits for reproof. See there? We see that it's profits. Profits for teaching. So we love to be taught it. And then next week, it profits for reproof. reproof. So we let the word and the people of the world, of the word, not the people of the world, maybe, maybe, maybe if it's appropriate, but we let the word and the people of the word tell us to put things off. That's what reproof means. As hard as it is, we agree that it profits to have the Bible tell us that we're wrong in some things and we need to put them off. We love people, even though they're sometimes hard, we love people that love us enough to teach us to tell us to stop doing things or say no to things or whatever the case may be. We don't surround ourselves with teachers, as Paul says. We don't surround ourselves with teachers that will suit our own pre-existing passions. Not unless they're not informed by the Word. So we want people that will call us out because we know that's profitable. Next, we see what it looks like. Verse 16, it profits for correction. 
So where reproof is putting things off, correction we see is putting things on. So we surround ourselves with teaching that will call us to begin things that will profit our soul and profit the good of God's people. We want correction because we know that God's path is a better path than the one we've designed for ourselves. Next, we see verse 16, it profits for training in righteousness. So this is sort of like putting the reproof and the correction together. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness by hungering and thirsting for the teaching of God's word? If you are, you are not only confessing that you believe the Bible is authoritative, that Christ is King and Lord and Master, you're functioning that way. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. And why do we do all of this? Why do we give ourselves to the teaching of this book? Look at verse 17. So that the man or the woman, the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this reminds us that in God's word, we have everything that we need to be complete, equipped for every good work. So friends, you give yourself to the study of this book. You'll experience that. Many of you already have. And so listen, don't lean, don't leave totally on me and my preaching. Don't lean totally on your community group leader. Don't lean totally on your own spouse if you have a spouse. We have to make sure and see that in here, in this book, Everything you need is here to make you complete. Equipped for every good work. Complete. So right, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says that the leader's responsibility is not to make you complete, but to expose you to the Word that you might then do the work of ministry yourself. Right? To equip you for the work of ministry. I love, I love, I love what a brother in my community group said this past week on Tuesday. He's talking about some struggle that he's going through, some difficulty that he's having in various aspects in his life. And he mentions to me, you know, I've, I realize that I, what I've been doing is I've just expected the church to just spoon feed me the gospel, he said. And he said, what I've now understood is, is that, yeah, they feed me, but I need to go to the table myself and eat. There's such a banquet here to eat. I need to do that for style. I need to take responsibility myself. And that's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. As you do this, though, beloved, as you give yourself to the good word, I want to leave you with these two final brief things to not forget. Two things to never forget. If you give yourself to the authority of the word, don't forget these two things. First off, you've got to be patient. Be patient. So many of you are so young. My goodness, just take a look around, right? We got, Joey ran the stats this week. 80% of our members, blow your mind. 80% of our members, is it 35? 80% of our members are below 35 years old. Right? I mean, wow. And, and another thing, another little fun fact here, this is totally off the cuff. I might get rebuked for this later, but 40, 40% of our members have been in this church, members of this church, for two years or less. And most of you are young in life, young in your faith. Most of you have never been a member of a church. Most of you have never sat under expositional preaching, gospel-centered preaching before. So listen, just be patient. Be patient. Be patient. My kids look the same every single day. But they change. I just can't see it. And the best way that I see that my kids are changing is when I have a lot of time to kind of look back and see the difference in how they look. And so in other words, what I mean by that, don't measure your growth for your love for Christ and His people in the Word by the day, but by the decade. 
Be patient. God is oftentimes, frustratingly, not in a hurry. So just regularly feast on the word day after day as you are assured that you're being trained for righteousness. And the second thing to remember, this is so critical, I'm going to end on this. Remember that Christ is the word that became flesh. Christ is the word that became flesh. This word testifies to him, to him. He's what we're after, right? He's what we're after. He is our strength. He's our great reward. He is our heavenly husband. He is our powerful king. He's our eternal reward. So remember, 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 you're not after the facts of the Bible. Satan knows the facts of the Bible better than you ever will. He knows what's going on in Kings and Chronicles, and he can make all kinds of biblical theological connections. That's not primarily what we're after. We're after the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's why we give ourselves to this book. That's what we're doing. Remember Jesus, the incarnate word who loved you and gave himself up for you. And the more that you give yourself to the word, the more that you will grow in your love for God and your love for his people. You'll love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the goal in all of this. Not to get a bunch of facts. Who cares? I had professors in seminary that, were not, that knew the Bible backwards and forwards that were not nearly as godly as some of people that didn't know all that stuff. <laughs> Self-control of my tongue. So, Christ is our goal. Christ is our goal. Christ is our goal. Give yourself to Jesus by studying Him. John 5.39, great verse. I use this verse all the time. Y'all get tired of me quoting it. You search the Scriptures because in them you think you have, they have life. But it is they that speak of Me, Jesus said. This is an autobiography of Jesus Christ. Give yourself to this book that you would grow in your love for Jesus and grow in your love for the people around you. William Tyndale, guys, he never lost sight of that. He never lost sight of that. That's why he gave his life for it. He wanted so bad for you to have the Bible to be read for yourself. And for pastors to be able to take it and preach it to you. So that you could read it and understand it. That you would love God. And I just want to end by thanking you, Restoration Church. You have no idea what a privilege it is to preach to you every week. And to counsel you and to disciple you. You guys love the Word. And I love that. We make jokes about the length of my sermons. I mean, right? Six minutes. till you know, I've been going for like, whatever. 45 minutes. 50 minutes. And we make jokes about that stuff, but I think you care. I think you care. I think you want it. And man, that is so, I'm so thankful for you guys in that. As a shepherd that knows that his sheep want to be fed, and I'm thankful for that. And not just in the preaching, all the stuff that happens in the life of our church. I'm so thankful that you love the Bible and you want to be fed the Bible. You don't want a bunch of just milk that Hebrews talks about. I'm so thankful that me and on behalf of the elders, we thank you the privilege of preaching the word to you. And so I end you by calling you to remember, beloved. Remember to not take for granted this book. And remember that it is able, that it is sufficient for salvation and is and sufficient for sanctification. Give yourself to it in order that you would love God and you would love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. So thankful, God, that you speak. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for speaking. And thank you for the word that became flesh, that dwelled among us. Thank you for this word that testifies to the infinite glory of his grace and the cross and the resurrection. 
Thank you for the faithful teachers, God, just as Paul, just as Timothy had. Thank you for the faithful teachers. I think about my mom. They just taught me the Bible. Thank you for the faithful pastors before us that have taught us the word. God, thank you for these people that are carrying it into their jobs and their homes. Bless them as we go about the work of not just loving the Bible, but loving you as we give ourselves to the Bible. May that always be the goal of this church. And may we make disciples that delight in your supremacy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.